0: Today's episode is brought to you by bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. I am joined by the inimitable Emil Kalinowski, co pilot of the Euro uh, Dollar University podcast, alongside Jeff Snyder. Emil, great to have you on Forward Guidance.
1: Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I appreciate it. I'm excited. Me too. Emil, you said that we are sort of in a silent depression. That's a pretty bold statement. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, because I want to dig into it.
1: We're not sort of. I am out there face first, no pants, no net, telling people on Twitter, at Emil Kalinowski, that we are in a depression, a worldwide depression, the third one of the past 150 years. The first one was called the Long Depression, 1873 to 1896. The next one, 1929, 1947, the Great Depression. And this one, ladies and gentlemen, is the Silent Depression. And it didn't begin with the COVID, the pandemic. It began in 2007 with a press release by BNP Paribas, on August 9th, 2007, about 1.14 a.m. Eastern Time, and they said, you know what, we cannot, we cannot value these three money market funds. And we've had trouble valuing them for the past two days. And after that day, you can see it in all manner of economic and monetary accounts. The great financial crisis began, and we never recovered. We never recovered. Uh, The economy has grown since then, Pathetically, pathetically. It's grown dreadfully. And just like the long depression and the great depression, we have seen economic growth, just like in those depressions. A depression is not constant contraction. But it's so miserable, so miserable, that actually this depression, many countries are trailing where we were in year 15 of those two last depressions. We're trailing those two depressions Right now in 2021, you know, we're recording this in some year that's not 2021, Jack. You'll have to tell the audience. But I have data through 2021 and uh, we're trailing uh, those last two depressions.
0: Yes, we are recording on July 5th, 2022, a uh, day after July hmm. 4th. Now, now that the fireworks are over, Emil, let, let's Earth? get into
1: this. What do you say? earth? What year? What year? Uh, I was just, I was loving that Top Gun movie. Did you see that Top Gun movie? Oh, I didn't. I've heard a lot of good things from uh, the investment community.
0: Everyone has it's not a
1: spoiler. To- it's not a spoiler, but there's one scene when Tom Cruise uh, in a spacesuit, comes back down to earth and he walks into a, a diner in the middle of rural America. And he asks them, where am I? Because uh, he he doesn't. He was in space. Now he's on the ground. God knows where. And the little child says, "Earth," which I thought was very funny. But it would have been also funny if Tom Cruise kept going and said, "What year?" You know, just to kind of keep playing like that. He's really from outer space. But we're not here to talk about the space-time continuum, are we, Jack? I'm sorry. Keep keep us nope. on track, Jack.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. So, Emil, the statement that BNP Paribas. Issued that notice, an o- ominous warning. They can't value the money market funds. Presumably, they had some sort of uh, what's it called? Commercial paper that was hard to value because all these banks were Mortgage. borrowing short term to buy yeah to buy long longer duration, very high risk securities. Uh, and yeah, the Great Financial Crisis it caused a global recession. That's pretty standard, pretty uh, pretty mainstream. But the view that we did not come out of a recession that is. Much more, uh, let not as widely held. Uh, tell us why you see that. I, I'll throw a few counterpoints at you, which is, you know, the the surge in commodity prices after in 2009 through 2014. Not typically something you see in a Great Depression. Uh, the consecutive series of positive GDP prints. I'm not saying they're out of this world, uh, but but they were positive. Um, yeah, just just consumer spending, uh, PMIs. None. None. I would suggest were like uh, serially in the level of a of a Great Depression. So tell us,
1: what, what would you say to those counterpoints? We are in agreement, Jack. We did we did come out of the recession. We didn't come out of the depression. So yes, a recession. People have different definitions. It's not quite certain what the actual definition is. But uh, we started growing again, the economy was above zero. But zero is not the standard by which we should judge economic human progress. So while yes, we had positive numbers, they were pathetic, they were miserable, ghastly, dreadful, worse than the Great Depression, worse than the Long Depression. And just because our last depression was great and the contraction was catastrophic early on, doesn't mean we need to reenact what happened in the Great Depression to have a depression. That's one of the problems, sorry. That's one of the problems that people have when they think of, well, it's not as ghastly and miserable as the Great Depression, therefore it's not a depression. No, a depression is when we are way, way, way off trend and we can never get back to it. Milton Friedman had something called the plucking model. I don't know if he was a guitar player, but he would say, You've got a guitar and you've got a string, you pull it down, recession, you let go, it comes back to that trend level. You know, it goes above, recovery, boom, and then it comes back to that steady state that it always was on. And he called that the plucking model. But basically, what he did is he went back, he looked at American history, and he said, Well, We've always had these sort of recoveries if you exclude the discontinuities. And Jack, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count which discontinuities he he excluded, the depressions. So outside of a depression, we hit a recession, we rebound above trend, we get back to that trend and we're on it and we go along on our merry way. A depression is a permanent break. If you, if there are any mathematically unkind people out there, it's a unit route that breaks the model. It's, we are now off trend. There's no getting back to that trend. And things are slow, like in Japan, ladies and gentlemen, let's look to Japan. They called that the lost decade, except now we're in our fourth lost decade in Japan. Well, Some people call it secular stagnation or the new normal or the lost decade. That's because they don't have the courage as leading economists to come out and say, we blew it, we're in a depression. We promised that we would never be in a depression again. That's the whole point of economics and the technocracy and central banking. And we blew it and we're in a depression. And we can talk about not just the economic things being off trend, but also things like birth rates uh, fertility rates, uh, life expectancy, um, faith in democracy, happiness, actually, all inflected and have been on a downward trend since 2007,
0: 2008. Emil, you won't get any disagreements with me or any uh, arguments at all on the topics of happiness, fertility, demographics. I, I feel like I want to s- stay within the So I seed all of those points, every sort of non-economic but let's just like if we put up a chart of U.S. GDP and then U.S. PCE, personal consumpti- consumption expenditures, uh, and l- l- let me share this. Uh, I think that we can sort of uh, put on a-, a visual display the point that you're making about off trend. So you see the line from uh, 1997 to two- 2000 was a certain trend that we had a recession in 2001, and then that went off trend. Then. We had 2002 to 2007. That was on trend, and then 2008 to 2009, we had a you know contraction, so we were off trend. So if you were to draw those lines according to the trend line, yes, the U.S. GDP in, in blue is below trend, but now it's actually closer to tr- to the pre GFC trend than it was before. And also important PCE, personal consumption expenditures, the red line. If you actually, and I can do this later, if you were to draw a line, we are actually at or above trend in personal consumption expenditures. So uh, what do you see on this chart that confirms uh, your view or or, or perhaps uh, does not confirm your view that we the U.S. GDP is above trend?
1: I would say let's use more data. Let's go back in time even further. Let's find out what the trend was from 1950 to be conservative for our cause, my cause here. We could go back to 1945, but there was kind of a boom after that. Let's whatever. The post-World War II order, 1945, 1950. Find out what real GDP was, what the growth rate was from that point until uh, 2007. And then compare it to what the real GDP growth rate has been ever since. And you'll find that whereas before it was 2%, now it's close to zero, at least it is in Britain. And then the uh, the latest economist, not the latest, the latest on the Cayman Islands, because I get all my economists by, uh, by bottle. But anyways, Britain's real problem. This is the June 11th economist. Anyways, they talk about how their GDP was about 2% before 2007 growing, the compounding growth rate and zero ever since. I use a completely different data set. I came to the same conclusion. The And then, so that's one point. Go back further in time, compare the entire 2000 experience and afterwards to what we have experienced for three generations. Here's another way of looking at it. Take the recent growth rates that we've experienced since 2007, take those and compare them, what happened from 1929 to 1947 take them and compare them to 1873 to 1896, what you'll see is they are, yeah, they're positive and they're worse than what we saw in the Great Depression. Think about what we see in our transistor chips, right? They are supposed to be doubling every 18 months, we are told, Moore's Law. And that they've been doing that since the 70s, apparently. If they didn't double, we would be off trend, right? So. It doesn't have to be a negative number. It can be still a positive number and you're off-trend and there's something wrong. Does that does that make sense, Jack, that we live in a here. Let's see this, speaking of The Economist, Mr. Uh, oh God, who is the famous uh, editor of The Economist and central banker? Walter Badgett. Yeah. Yes. He had a very nice quote. Once he said that John Bull can stand anything, but he can't stand 2%, meaning you're paying John Bull, which is John Doe for the British people. John Q oh, public. No. Yeah. Uh, John Bull. You Joe Sixpack. Joe Sixpack. They have it so, there's so much classier, the Brits. They are, Anyways, in every way. Two percent is the bare minimum. He didn't say zero. Zero is not the standard by which we should judge. We should judge by our standard growth rate. And in Britain, two percent, whatever it happens to be. It's above zero, well above zero. And if we're not on that trend, then we're in a depression. And we have been for 15 years. Just like in Japan, their growth rate is positive, but it's miserable.
0: Yeah, so I actually found the chart you were mentioning of, of real GDP. We can put that up.
1: After 2007, you can even look at it. It's not very exciting, is it? It's much significantly lower. And it doesn't look too much lower, does it? It doesn't doesn't. look like it's that much lower. But remember, ladies and gentlemen, as Einstein told us, perhaps he didn't, but we say he did, that compounding is the most important or most powerful force in the universe. Is that right? Did he say that? Somebody said that, that was mathematically inclined. You have a low growth rate year after year after year. The economists calculated that because Britain's economy sucks and stinks, that's my words, not theirs, they're classy. They are $8,380 behind trend per person. Each person in Britain should be making $8,380 more. That's through 2019, ladies and gentlemen. You know what happened in 2020. My calculations put that number in Britain at 12,445, whatever. The point is real people are thousands of dollars behind in income Relative to the trend they have come to experience for three generations, 60 years. And it's not talked about, and it's silent. That's why it's the silent depression, because the mainstream media doesn't bring our technocrats, our central bankers, our politicians to task. They don't say, what's going on? Why are things so lousy economically? They don't. It's silent. If a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If there's a depression on and the financial media doesn't say anything about it, is there a depression or is it just silent?
0: But what about the multiple recessions? The, the, if you look at this chart, the you know what's, what's, what's clear is the lack of shaded bars indicating recession. You know, in the in the golden era that you talk about, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, we had something like a recession every you know five or six years. Uh, in this silent depression of the past fourteen years, that, that you say we're in a silent depression, we've we've only had
1: uh, one recession, and it lasted like a month in, in March of twenty twenty. How do you explain that? It's ama- it's amazing. It's amazing how how important growth rates are. And my partner Jeff Snyder, who is at Eurodollar University, he did a study on this in one of his blog posts, and he showed. How even with recessions, GDP presently is trailing what we had earned, what we had achieved in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So we took little periods and sometimes there was one, sometimes there was two recessions in there. And yet still, there was more growth by the end of that period than our nice and calm, but it's not calm. It's stagnant. That's another way of looking at it. Calm. It's a stagnant growth rate, and and I had a wonderful point that I was going to make, but of course I've forgotten what it is.
0: Well, you'll rem- you'll remember it later. And actually, I actually think if you looked at not the year over year change, but the actual GDP or real GDP, real PCE or PCE, you will see that Jeff's point is borne out by even your point is borne out by the fact that even with the bands, yes, uh, the bands, even with recession bands, yeah, you still you still had a higher uh, absolute level. I guess Emil to what do you attribute this malaise you know we the this the. why is it that we're in a silent depression now as you see it and what is different now than than was different in the 1950s 60s and 70s
1: It's the same reason we fell into depression the last two times the worldwide depression by the way there were two other depressions in the in between this time period that I'm talking about but they only uh, affected about half of the world let's say the latin american debt crisis was also in africa and it was ghastly it was awful so that was a depression in latin america and africa and then world war one was a depression for the advanced economies whereas not so much for the emerging markets but what is the overriding singular issue that you find in all depressions multiple lost decades the lack of money missing money not enough money is being created for economic actors to be able to transact that's that was the proximate cause for our silent depression but because that disease festered it it, a force of course the monetary disorder affected capital markets then the economy but because it festered because we didn't address the root causes that spilled over into politics and society now so Big picture, I'm talking fourth turning, I'm talking George Friedman's The Storm Before the Calm, I'm talking about the end of the established order, basically. That's the big reason why we're experiencing this. The proximate cause, the snowflake, if you will, that caused the avalanche is the lack of money, modern money, credit, collateral in the economy, not enough of it. Not enough of it for us to be able to expand the economy at growth rates that we've become used to. And why were banks not creating enough money? And I should
0: say that you, know, you and Jeff Snyder uh, believe that when you say money is printed, it's not by central banks, it's by commercial banks. so JP. Morgan, Bank of America. Why, you know, Bank of America, JP. Morgan making loans? sounds pretty profitable to me. Like why are, why are they making less money now?
1: Risk versus return. They don't believe that they can make enough return relative to the risk they see out in the economy. They've also. And what been, is that risk?
0: What is that risk? Sorry. Why is the risk uh, adjusted returns lower now than in 1970, 1980, for example?
1: They no longer believe in the expansion of money, whereas bef- they've had their fingers singed four times now since 2007. They, so they're, they're, what's the word I'm looking for? Hesitant to go out there. They've also seen how the regulators have responded to each of these crises, and they don't particularly like the the way the regulators have responded. In terms of competence, I would say they've been incompetent. So by 2007, various formats of money were being created that were being considered money good. Bank balance sheets were expanding at an exponential pace. Derivatives were used to be able to manage those bank balance sheets. Everything was growing exponentially. The expansion of the bank balance sheet meant the creation of money that the world economy was going to be able to utilize to conduct economic transactions. But they had that shock in 2007. What they thought was money good, mortgage-backed securities, wasn't. So they suffered a wound on their balance sheet. The central bankers stepped in, they blew it for over a year and they didn't fix it eventually. It was a, an accounting regulation that ended the great financial crisis, the global financial crisis. It was an accounting regulation that said, you don't need to price these things based on market uh, feedback anymore. You, why don't we just price it based on what markets would price it if they were healthy? That was the accounting change. March, early March, 2009. It wasn't central banks. Nevertheless, the banking system said, okay, let's just get back to the way things were until we had another once in four generations crisis, four years later, this time the European sovereign debt market went bust almost, right? It was once again, assets that we thought were money good, the bankers, sovereign bonds, that all of a sudden were not. And then a couple years after that, emerging markets experienced their crisis as well. That was on par, if not worse in some ways than what we saw in the global financial crisis. And then starting in 2018, we began another global dollar credit collateral shortage. It accelerated, we were on the cusp of recessions worldwide when the pandemic stepped in and pushed everyone off the ledge just for good measure. And now we're beginning the fifth, the fifth downturn regional or global, in the last 15 years. So if you're a bank, are you going to extend credit at anything other than the safest possible borrowers on the safest possible terms? You're not going to... No, no. You're going to de-risk your balance sheet, your assets and your liabilities. And that is fine for them, but it's a big problem for us because we're counting on them to provide us the money that we use to run the global economy.
0: OK, so, Emil, I feel like, uh, you know, you're looking at, let's say, the money creation from 2000 to 2007 as something that is healthy and supportive of economic growth and the money in creation from 2009 to now as sort of artificially low. But might I be able to flip the t- turn the tables on you and say, no? What we had from 2000 to 2007 was a huge bubble that almost, you know, wrecked the entire world. And it's actually a good thing that uh, you know banks are now slightly handcuffed, and there's lots of regulatory uh, um, um, uh, imp- impingements on banks' ability to create credit. For you know, for example, like a uh, selling an insurance contract on a highly illiquid uh, credit derivative should not be. You should not be able to put that on, on your balance sheet with the same risk weighting as a treasury. Maybe it's a good thing that you know the credit default swap market is now like 50 times smaller than it was in 2007.
1: We are in total agreement, Jack. Again, you've set up a trap for me and I walk into it and I say, I love it. I agree with you. If I was to use the 2000 to 2007 time period and say, that's normal. That's okay. Let's go back to this. Yay. No, that's bananas. That's crazy talk. And I agree with you. Uh, no, no, we don't, that was overwrought. The data I'm talking about, you can get from the BIS, Bank for International Settlements. They have data going back to the late 70s, and that data shows that we were on an exponential trend from there. We don't have the data as clearly as readily available from the 1950s, but We have more reports and anecdotal examples of compounded annual growth rates. And they are similar to what we saw. It was the low to mid-teens in bank balance sheet expansion, money creation. That was taking place from the mid-50s, really got going in the 60s, rocket fuel in the 70s, big slowdown in the 80s, and then absolute takeoff again in the 90s and 2000s. And that's what we got used to over three generations. And to your point there, you said it's a good thing that the regulators stepped in after 2007, they looked what happened since 2000 and they said, you guys are crazy, we're not gonna let you do this. Here's, the banks don't care about the regulators and the regulations and I'm being a little bit, uh, I'm using poetic license here. But the fifth most powerful force in the universe is bankers' greed. The first four we know are from physics. The fifth one is bankers' greed. They will work through, over, under regulations to make money, if there is money to be made. They'll buy the legislators to write the regulations. In the 1940s, 50s and 60s, we had something called financial repression after the Second World War that was so restrictive that it would make these days look like something that's a party. That's not restrictive, just a free for all, free and loose. And yet they made money and created money well beyond and out of control of the central banks. There are many quotes from the 60s, 70s and 80s of bankers saying this offshore money creation network is beyond control of official regulators. So it's the regulations are just nice ornaments. If bankers feel there's money to be made, they will make it. And the regulations after the Second World War, I I hesitate to even call them regulations because that underplays it. It was a full-on government intervention call under the big umbrella of financial repression, capital controls, price controls, rent controls, investment committees uh, that prevented you from buying securities unless you got approval from the government from going into debt, intense financial repression after the Second World War on a worldwide basis. The bankers made it work and they grew their balance sheets exponentially. They will find a way through these regulations. So it's not what we see after 2007 that the regulations are stopping the bankers, no. They don't want to participate. They believe there's too much risk out there. And I'm not saying that we should cry for bankers and no banker is paying me. I'm not a, 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 a what would we call it? Somebody, a public speaker for the bankers. I wish they would pay me, yeah. they don't. I'm just big saying- Big bank,
0: that, but you're paid for uh, big banks.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would call me, please, I'll take your money. But <laughs> I'm not, I'm just saying they do things that we need. They've stopped doing them and we're all suffering for it.
0: Right how how much of the contraction in bank lending do you think is due to sort of accounting in terms of we move something from the left side of the letter to the, to the right or or maybe below and I'll I'll explain what I mean which is back in the 50s and 60s if you wanted to start a company you would borrow from Mr. Bank, and you know, you, you've got a nice outfit on, so I'd call you up and you'd be my banker and you'd give me a line of credit. And uh, you know, and the Federal Reserve would count it as, as bank credit creation. Whereas now, I might go to a venture capitalist. Uh, if I'm a large public company, I might be able to sell a bond. Oh, and by the way, if I do lend, if you do lend to me, Mr. Banker, and you sort of do the alchemy, al- alchemy that only bankers can do where you create money from nothing, you might sell that. Uh bank loan in the securities market to a real money investor who is not creating money from nothing so uh, um you know to to what degree do you think it's that the total amount of funding has is actually not small because here's here's one thing that I do believe quite strongly you can I'm open to changing my mind, but i I do believe that the amount of capital that is available to businesses not necessarily individual but to businesses particularly large businesses particularly businesses that can sell a dream oh my god Emil, electric you think electric cars are cool i i've got a company electric planes okay we're going to take over the world i've got a fleet of electric planes i feel like i could raise a billion dollars not that hard and i actually have seen you know multiple instances of like a shoe company that's worth 10 billion dollars why this is not something that you see during a silent depression and you know i don't mean to undermine the point that you make about the economy but i just i just mean if we were it if we were in a uh economy, a financing system that was stringent, where there was not a lot of money available for businesses, you you wouldn't see you know juice companies or, or oat milk companies valued at 15 billion dollars. but we do.
1: What do you say? Uh, I say that oat milk is delicious, so it should be valued at 15 billion dollars. It's wonderful. have you Has your audience tried this? Are you sponsored by them? It's wonderful. I love it. um yes, it's I think I could, hmm, a couple of points. But let's go with the last point. the The point is that our growth rates don't need to be negative for us to be in a depression. Just like in those depressions, it wasn't a desolation. It wasn't a dystopian science fiction future. It wasn't uh, Blade Runner or something like that. Misery. Uh, no, it's just our economy is growing very slowly. Too slowly and it leads to all sorts of social, political, and international problems. But the growth is still there. Money is available for some businesses, the safest ones predominantly, and some fantastic stories. Fine. Um, it's It's not a nuclear winter. We don't need to see that. We don't need to see the first four years of the Great Depression to be in a depression. Our economy still is growing dreadfully. And it's not just me, it's not just me. It's all those people that are talking about secular stagnation or new normal or the economists saying economic decline has become a chronic British disease. You can apply that globally to the advanced economy. So yeah, humans are valuing, you know, they do crazy things and oat milk companies get great valuations, okay.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero taker fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at bit.com. That's bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at bit.com and tell them I sent you. Yeah, I I think the some the number of um, dollars raised in IPOs over the past I think two years is something like six hundred billion, like six hundred fifty. And I think during the dot com bubble, it was only one hundred and fifty billion. So I think would would you would you say that we are not in a speculative bubble, or at least uh, you know since over the past year? I mean, we're in the, we're, if we're in a bubble, it is bursting. So, but like I feel like there is definitely a lot of of speculation, and that is not something you typically see during a depression. Uh, I'll, I'll bring it home and I'll say, you know, the asset prices have gone up so much uh, over the past 14 years. And obviously, you know, the stock market is not the economy. We all know that. But is that consistent? Is is a, you know, a 15, 20% you know, increase in, in the S&P 500 year over year, is that consistent with the Great Depression, with the Silent Depression?
1: Yes. In both the Long and Great Depressions, the U.S. stock market rose. It collapsed, right? And then it rose for many, many years. So yes, you can see expansion in the stock market during a depression, we're seeing it here now. Uh, are we in a bubble? I guess so. Uh, are you? We're venturing away from the economy into financial instruments and investments, which I'm not as capable in opining on, and yeah, it seems crazy, and so be it. Big picture, uh, so, okay, I'm, very confident that we are in a awful economy and have been for a very long time and it's affected our faith in democracy, happiness, fertility rates, life expectancy, um, all manner of other things. And the finan- and the stock markets are up. Okay, I, I'm not as confident about the, the stock market, whether it should be up or down. I do know in the long and great depressions, the US stock market rose too. Uh, I would like to point big picture to the BIS data, and they have derivative data, they have claims, uh, bank claims on other banks. And if you look at that big picture, that data goes back to the 1970s. It grew exponentially, and then it got to 2007, 2008, maybe a little bit 2011, some growth, but basically it's been sideways ever since. Big. That's the big picture I wanna say that there's not enough money in the system. Now there is money. We haven't wiped it all out, and some of that money is being put to use in different places. But it's not a growth economy. Mm. All
0: right. the, the last point on the silent depression is so. There's, uh, as you said, the stock market can rise during a depression. I, I think that you know S and P 500 had something like a 90% drop from 29 to 36, with or maybe 37, with multiple dead cat bounces. But yeah, I take that from 37 to 40. The stock market went up, but yeah, I don't know. It was it was a pretty brutal stock. I feel like the, the 2007 to now, including the drop, is not comparable to, to 1929 to 1940, I feel like.
1: We're well above where we are before the silent depression began, where that's not the case in the Great Depression. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is once the contraction stopped, which I thought would only last, I only thought it lasted a few years. But if you remember, that's good. Uh, once the contraction stopped, then we saw many years of rising stock market prices. But we are in a depression. Same thing in the long depression.
0: Emil, the increase in consumer prices we've seen over the past year are quite drastic. They're in the U.S. They're at 40-year highs, and they're very high in Europe too, which is surprising because you think of Europe as sort of this deflationary hub. To what do you attribute the increase in consumer prices, and would you characterize? that increase in consumer prices as I would and as many would as as, as inflation.
1: Uh, no, and I'm dodging your audience's rotten eggs, cabbages and tomatoes as they're throwing them at me. As I said, there's no inflation. What a jerk I am, what a jerk. No, but I, I am saying that they are consumer price increases, but I don't attribute them to monetary inflation. I don't attribute them to the expansion of bank balance sheets, the expansion of the central bank balance sheet, or a continuous stream of central government stimulus payments. That's not what has caused our consumer price increases. I would say consumer price increases have been caused by the global logistical system, globalization, to be electroshocked by what happened in 2020 and thereafter where governments turned it on, turned it off, turned it on, turned it off. a system that was designed for efficiency was experienced a full-body dry heave and caused all manner of disruptions. So we had supply constrictions, then we had demand surges, particularly in the United States, demand surges for goods. And how do you resolve that? You resolve it through price. And so that's what we experienced. How do I, quote unquote, know it wasn't the central bank printing, because we've seen central bank printing for 20 years, and it didn't lead to consumer price increases, did it? In Japan, they started in 2001, QE. Have they had a consumer price bonanza? No, that's why they're on QE27. 2008 in the United States, well, it was announced in 2008, 2009 in the United States, a few years later in Europe, no consumer price orgy, like the one we saw until recently, because what was different? What's the difference? Was it huge government stimulus payments? We had huge government stimulus payments from Japan, from the United States after 2008, huge, the biggest ever, until we got to more recent years, and they're even huger. But we've had huge government payments. We've had tax cuts, Stimi checks, after 2008 people forget cash for clunkers we had president bush sending out checks to people so we've had this before no consumer price bonanza until the global logistical system just in time efficiency was electroshocked for many many months over a year by by the uh, the, the the covid and then I think that there's also a little bit of uh, Cold War II going on. I don't know if we want to get into that. But, you know, China, we're getting so many of our things from Team West. Team Western countries are getting so many things from China. So now maybe there's going to be some ongoing That's probably in the future. But anyhow, my first point stands.
0: Yep. Yep. You make a lot of good points. I want to start with the points that I agree with the most. So I, I will acknowledge you are 100% right that I think quantitative easing by itself, uh, central banks buying assets from commercial banks, is not sufficient to create uh, meaningful inflation or growth by itself. And I think you saw that in Japan. You saw and you saw that uh, in the U.S., where we did have sclerotic growth, even as we, you know, the quantitative easing uh, spigots were turned on. I think they are very useful at uh, useful in quotation marks. The very quantitative easing is very effective at uh, supporting asset markets, but much much less so uh uh the real economy and i know you and jeff would probably say not at all um here's
1: if i i'd like to wrinkle your brain here some more the qe is very supportive for asset markets through narrative not actual money not actual taking qe bank reserves and leading to investment in the stock market as jeff snyder who is in the financial services industry often says we want to buy, just like in the Great Depression and the Long Depression. We were buying stocks in the middle of a depression. We want to buy. We want to send the stock market up. The financial services industry wants you to buy and will tell you so. And they'll use the narrative air cover provided by central banks that they're printing, that there's liquidity agog, that it's the, the most liquidity since NOAA to get people to buy and invest in the stock market. But it's not actual economic or financial capital market money that's coming from these central banks. Back to your, your stream of consciousness. Where were you going to go? You were heading like, I really like what you said here in the beginning, but now let me segue to that part where I very much disagree with you.
0: So yeah, now we're in the middle category where it's like, I kind of agree, you kind of disagree, but I would say yeah, d- d- the inflation that we're seeing now, whoa, oh, the... Consumer price increases that we're seeing now uh, is very due to supply chain issues, to commodity prices, uh, you know, serial underinvestment in commodities, as well as the sort of uh, Japanification of supply chains, where the the Japan model that was developed in the 1970s and 1980s of like you're building a car out the Toyota plant, the wheel is going to arrive fifteen minutes before the car is is going to be driving off the road. You know, that, that sort of model. And that model is very efficient, but it is very sensitive and not at all resilient to supply side shocks. However, Emil, I have been doing you know some reading about the nineteen seventies and in particular the most recent book I don't is, recommend uh, reading. I think the world for sale. Oh my God. Yeah, read it. it's, Please it, it's don't much read overrated. People. Podcasting Your is audience. much better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I, I feel like a lot of the inflation that we saw in the 1970s was supply chain chain driven. With uh, you know the emergence of OPEC in 1973 and 1974, and the huge surge in oil, the sort of deregulation of the oil market, uh, the the transfer of power from uh, the old sort of boring commodity oil companies to the you know sort of high powered, high finance commodity traders. And that was in large scale uh, supply chain driven. So, you know, you and Jeff and me, we can all look at uh, commercial bank balance sheets expanding during the 1970s. But to what degree was that actually sort of just reinforcing inflation rather than causing it? Because, you know, bank balance sheets are
1: swelling right now. I would say they're probably not swelling relative to any sort of trend that we saw previously. So, And then let's say they are swelling. Okay, let's see if they keep swelling. Because that's what economic growth is: continuous expansion, optimism, hope for the future. I doubt it. We're recording this second half of twenty twenty-two. I would be betting that they'd be contracting. Jeff, and going forward. Uh, Jeff and I did okay, an yeah. episode on this, and I don't remember what the title of it was, but it had something to do with OPEC or the oh petrodollar. So, if the audience is interested in what I'm about to say, petrodollar go to the Emil Kalinowski YouTube page, search for petrodollar. Our most recent episode was on this topic. And Jeff, because he doesn't want to spend time with people, he'd rather be reading what people, what monetary authorities were saying in the 1970s. He spends all weekend going through transcripts of the FOMC meetings, all manner of reports from the 70s. It's. sucks extremely disturbing, but we have a great relationship.
0: Aha, so he, he does read. Jeff does read.
1: Not books. Not books. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the point was, we did an episode on this, and it turned out that that petrodollar surge, that OPEC bonanza, fit very neatly into the Eurodollar system. It wasn't, the, the dollar system was that much bigger. That much bigger. That's where the inflation was coming from. This incredible transfer of wealth from advanced economies to the emerging market oil producers, and then the emerging market oil producers taking that money and dropping it into US treasuries and European sovereign bonds or wherever else they put it, was gigantic. And it paled in comparison to what was taking place. And we go over some of the numbers, how it just fits very, very neatly into this gigantic expanding offshore money system. So that's where the- Hailed in came comparison
0: from. to the Eurodollar system.
1: Yeah, so the consumer price shocks that we saw, sure, because consumer price increases are tied to oil, very importantly, so we saw those spikes and shocks. But what we didn't see, we saw the bond market look right through those things. They said, this is a supply disruption, and this is going to work itself out. So the bond yields during the early part of the '70s and so forth—they didn't go up with those t- tremendous spikes. They just kept pace with the expansion yes. in the monetary realm, which was gigantic. So that's our thesis. It was—it really was an incomprehensibly large expansion of money.
0: What is the Eurodollar system, Emil? You—you are part and parcel of Eurodollar University. What is the Eurodollar system?
1: The Eurodollar is a shorthand for banks creating money out of thin air at a beyond the view of regulators no let's let drop that last part it's it's shorthand for banks creating money out of thin air with enthusiasm
0: and also offshore right that's the euro part it's it's not jp morgan within the us it's offshore
1: it's shorthand it's shorthand originally it was literally dollars in Europe or Japan or maybe yen in Europe and francs in Japan. Money that doesn't belong to that country that's available in another country held by a bank were the euro currencies. And so it literally was euro dollars. But then, then as bankers are wont to do, they just started to expand that definition, pushing the definition, including financial instruments and expanding rates offshore, onshore, growing their balance sheets. So Eurodollar is shorthand for gargantuan bank balance sheet expansion that take pl- takes place a lot of the time offshore, but you know onshore as well, if there's money to be made by banks.
0: In what So in what way is it different than the sort of banking system that we conventionally think of it? And also, to what degree, and I think this is a key element of it, is it sort of out of the control of the Federal Reserve? Can you, can you speak to that?
1: Yes. So nominally, in the in, internally, onshore, the banks have to respond to the bank regulator, the central bank, and play ball. And that's fine. But they'll still push the envelope, of course. But then you go offshore... And you go to jurisdictions which have a light touch regulation and those jurisdictions say, you can come up and set up a bank here. You cannot do any business with anyone here in the city of London. You have to do all your business facing outwards or the Cayman Islands or Gibraltar or the Seychelles or any number of other offshore jurisdictions. You can't do business with anyone on the Cayman Islands but you can serve anyone you want from the Cayman Islands. And you know what? We're not going to make you keep any bank reserves. What do you think of that? It's all up to you and how you run your business. And so a lot of people are concerned about bank reserves. And if you don't have enough bank reserves, you can't make enough loans. Well, offshore, you don't know. There's none of those. It was just about confidence that other institutions and borrowers and lenders had in you. Whether or not you can make good on the promises that you made. And that was basically the offshore system. So you have banks doing business onshore with each other, banks doing business offshore and onshore. Then you have banks that are completely on offshore, that the Federal Reserve has nothing to do. They can't even see what's going on between a bank in the Cayman Islands and a bank in Singapore, even though those banks are promising to deliver dollars. So there's a gigantic hole, a gigantic gap, a lacuna that the Federal Reserve has no insight into, let alone regulation, let alone knowledge, let alone sometimes even interest in regulating these this dollar creation.
0: And what sort of businesses are, you know, what businesses are lent to via the Euro dollar system? Is it sort of a very, is it sort of large, you know, l- large numbers where it's like, I'm lending you hundred billion dollars and you know, for example repo repo is a thing where you don't have to have a lot of collateral because you know the most you're going to lose in a day is one percent probably way less than that um because treasuries are so safe so you know, you know how it is where someone can say that they run a 50 billion dollar like bond fund or something but that's different than running like a derivatives fund where you know your VAR is probably like more if you're if you're managing way less so so I'm saying like what 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 sort of businesses are in the euro dollar system I know this is a very I've not done a good job of asking this question but is it sort of like, you know, and again, I just read this book about the commodity traders, all, all of commodities, you know, most commodities are, are denominated in dollars. So Bank of uh, BNP Paribas will give a line of credit uh, for $100 million to this oil trader. And then, you know, but, but how big of a deal does that actually exert uh, in the in the force if, if it's like sort of paid back very quickly? And then also, can you speak to the euro dollar system knows, like the euro dollar system is smelling out uh, that deflation is on the horizon. Like how is it that all of these offshore banks really actually sort of right, make the call is it sort of, is it this this commercial activity, uh, the result of which lending and borrowing in the Euro dollar system that makes the Euro dollar system the way it looks, or is it actually just sort of macro traders and it's sort of, they're in the, they're in the matrix and they happen to be right a lot of the time, but the Euro dollar futures, as we think of them, as, as we look at there's an inversion in the Euro dollar curve, uh, that is actually different than the euro dollar system itself. It's sort of just a highly financialized sort of fake version of it.
1: I don't know how to answer your first question very well. I think you should have Alfonso on Macro Alf on your show, and he will be able to answer your question as to who banks lend to. I would think just, I don't know, everyone. Anyone they think they can make money off of, the whole economy. So he would be able to answer your question. And your second question... Yeah the eurodollar futures system is one particular aspect of these this broad monetary order and it happens to share a name with the shorthand name that we give to the overall monetary creation and how do these people know i don't know it's so fascinating i think it's a that's we should have that person on that wrote that book wisdom of the crowds i don't know how it works it's incredible but basically multiple independent points of view weighing together the probabilities of the future and they can do it they can do it and they have a good sense i don't know what they look at but each of these individuals multiple independent points of view have their preferred measures and they look at them and they sense "Hmm, things are turning and they start to make those incremental bets and then other people look at their measures and somehow it all works together. It's incredible. It's a miracle how decentralized systems can do a, such a great job at uh, looking out into the future and uh, getting a good sense what will happen.
0: Right. But I want to draw a distinction, and maybe it's only a conceptual distinction, but in category one, let's say it's you and I, and you're a hedge macro hedge fund manager, and I'm sort of your trader and you and I look, it's October 2021, and we say, hey, this inflation thing is kind of getting out of control. The Fed should hike. The Fed is behind the curve. I'm going to short some euro dollar futures in March or something like that. And we, as sort of macro traders, are making a call. That's scenario one. Scenario two is macro ALF and Jeffrey Snyder are large wholesale money dealers uh, based out of the Cayman Islands, and they are lending to commodity traders and real estate and and also, there's you know banks in China, the whole eurodollar system itself, and as a result of that decentralized demand and supply of money and and credit creation, the eurodollar curve is the way it looks. In which 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 is it? Scenario one or scenario two or both?
1: Uh, I don't know. Symbiotic, uh, they feed each other. Yeah. The real economy information feeds the bets that the traders make. The information that they they're hearing that maybe things aren't so good. The inventory is starting to build up. So it's symbiotic. I don't know how the system works. It's a miracle. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think if it is scenario one, then it is sort of of, of the macro hedge fund managers just creating their own future. It's kind of it's kind of a mirror image of the argument that central banks create affect the economy. Right. It's just in both in both cases it's it's peoples in fancy clothes sort of uh you know playing on a string Vers- versus the euro dollar system of scenario two is the decentralized future of right i
1: don't know forgive me jack yeah. i'
0: I don't know that's why I asked I always ask questions i, I don't know the answer <laughs> okay. I, I, you are forgiven no need Thank for you. Forgiveness. Okay. um let's let's move on to the Federal Reserve. You, I think you and Jeff are famous for your view that the Federal Reserve plays does not play a particular role in the slowdown of the economy. Uh, do you, so, tell us. Let's go, let's go back to March 2020. The conventional narrative, which I think I happen to to agree with, is that uh, there was a ton of money printing in 2020 and 2021. That money printing was done by the Federal Reserve, by commercial banks, and by the government, and that the the, the sum of that money printing was much greater than the whole of its parts. As you can see, QE by itself is is not at all an effective growth stimulant. But when you have the government printing tons of money, issuing tons of bonds that, in effect, are bought by the Federal Reserve via the primary dealers, and then you also have uh, commercial banks uh, lending out money that is then forgiven by the federal government – that is definitely money creation, and that money creation had a large part to play in the somewhat stunning economic recovery we saw. You know, I mean, people forget how how grim and dire things looked in March and April of 2020 when the employment rate just skyrocketed and and, and absolutely ballooned. So, uh, yeah, to what to what degree do you think uh, the Fed played a role in the economic recovery of 2020, and to what degree has it played a role in the you know? perhaps a slowdown in the economy that we're seeing now, now that it's tightening policy?
1: I don't know. what You want to call it a recovery? Was it a recovery? Did we get back to trend? A pathetic trend that we were on beforehand? Uh, I would call it a reflation, uh, rebound. And they had a role. They're, I mean, are we conflating them being a janitor with them being a central bank? They came after the catastrophe, they brought on the catastrophe themselves because they pulled out all short-term, all poetic license. They, after twenty September 2019, they started buying short-term US treasury bills, the best of the best of US collateral, financial system collateral. They were pulling that out of the system. That is malfeasance, malpractice. They should have been brought up on charges like a doctor who amputates the wrong foot. They were pulling collateral out of the system leading After a multi-year, two-year downturn, then we had the Corona crisis, there was a terrible downturn and then they stepped in and did lots of things. So they really weren't a central bank up to the point when they started doing lots of things, were they? They weren't really encouraging money supply, they didn't see that there was a big downturn on the way. Then they stepped in and they cleaned things up and they did a great job with narrative and propaganda and support and things will be better. And the economy was turned off, then it was turned back on. And we had a recovery and reflation. It was better that they did something than nothing, I suppose, sure, fair enough. I really particularly like the government guaranteeing bank loans. You saw that all over the world. That was something very new that we hadn't seen to date during this silent depression. Government guaranteed bank loans. Excellent, to the real economy, excellent. Guess what, those things are expiring, those things are being wrapped up, nobody's expanding them, not enthusiastically. And we're right back into a downturn right now. So to your second question, Uh, Did the Federal Reserve bring about the downturn by changing their policies and their narrative and tightening? No, it's comical, and I'm laughing. The downturn began in February of 2021, or at least the end of the reflation, the end of economic growth and opportunity. Bond spreads began to narrow. The 10-year versus the 2-year began to narrow. All manner of other bond spreads began to narrow February 2021. It narrowed even further in May, especially a lot more in October. Eurodollar inversion in December. U.S. Treasury curve at the beginning of the year of 2022. Then the invasion by Russia into the Ukraine helped push even more people towards a deflationary, contractionary, expansionary slowdown. But the, the central bank, as has been the case for decades, follows the bond market. It's the bond market that leads us in uh, giving us an, uh, uh, an outlook into the future as to what we can expect from the economy. Can you ex-
0: explain a little bit about what you mean when you say it's the bond market that, that leads the Fed and not the other way around?
1: The bond market tells us what level of economic opportunity we can expect into the future. And when yield spreads start contracting, other just straight up nominal ones, which they haven't been, or the spread, the the, the spread has been contracting where nominal rates have not been, then it suggests there is mm, economic opportunity that's being short circuited. So we should expect to see an upward sloping yield curve. We should see a yield curve that's rising higher and higher, suggesting that if the government needs to compensate you more and more, because there's so much economic opportunity, Why would you put your money in these safe instruments? You're a fool when you can invest in the economy and make so much more with not that much more risk, right? Now, obviously, there's risk return, but the rising yields suggest there's more and more economic opportunity to be had that the government needs to compensate people for. We've seen nominal yields rise, so that suggests economic opportunity is good in the future. No, I think that has to do with the Federal Reserve raising rates. And how do we know that for sure? It's because the spread between the 10-year and the 2-year has been contracting. So basically, the yield curve has been rising bit by bit, being pushed up by the Federal Reserve, offering their money alternatives. Uh, But the 10-year eight-year, longer-term ones. Did I say eight-year? I meant seven. Uh, Five-year. Those are not being pushed up by as much, right? They're resisting. They're saying, mm, I don't think so. Even the short-term ones, the two-year ones, or the even the shortest term, the one-month, the, the less-than-one-year bills, even those are yielding less than something like the reverse repo rate because people are saying, we need this collateral. The Fed is setting a floor. We're going to ignore that floor. We're going to be- buy below the floor. We're going to lose money. We're going to lose return because we are desperately in need of this collateral. So I'm I'm rambling now. Go on. Go on. No, you're not. No, you're not. So
0: you said that Fed is pushing up the two-year. Would that suggest that the Federal Reserve you know, has an important role to play in, in driving the two-year?
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. We're not saying they're powerless. We're just saying they're one node in the system. They're one of the planets in this solar system. They're not the sun. They carry themselves as the sun. They pretend they are the sun. But they're just one of the nodes and they have influences. But they're part of the system. They're not this overwhelming force.
0: How does the Federal Reserve exert control over the two-year yield? You know, there is this concept, forward guidance, which happens to be the name of this podcast, that the Federal Reserve indicates, real you know, rather than raising rates from zero percent to two percent overnight. That indicates we're going to tighten monetary policy, and we're going to be data dependent, and that sort of changes the future cur- uh, f- forward path of interest rates, the forward curve of interest rates. Whether it's the SOFR curve, the Eurodollar curve, the Fed funds curves, they're all highly, highly related, like an R squared of, you know, basic, you know, very, very related. Um so how uh what is your what is your outlook on the forward guidance that has happened? And you know, do you think that the tumultuous rise in the two-year treasury yield, for example, has been due to the Federal Reserve sort of wink, wink, and nudging the market, saying, hey, by the way, we're serious, we're hawkish, we're raising rates.
1: I definitely agree with you. Yes, the two-year has been rising that much because the Fed is saying, we are zealots. We are looking just at the CPI and its high, and therefore, we have to be seen to be doing something, so we're going to be raising rates, even though an entire slew of monetary measures for the last year have been warning us that the economy is not as optimistic, not as good especially since October. we've seen inversion in very important bond markets, money markets. We're going to completely ignore that because we're beholden to politicians and CPI and we have to be seen to be doing something. So the those markets, the two-year market, the euro dollar market, they're seeing zealots saying we don't care, we're going to keep rising We're going to keep raising rates even though there's a recession likely already in progress because we're recording this five days after the close of the second quarter in the United States, which will be negative, maybe, maybe. So that'll be an undeniable recession. First half of the year is being negative. Yes. But the euro dollar futures curve, Jack, the euro dollar futures curve, look at that. They are saying, we hear what you're saying and we don't believe you. We don't believe you. We believe you're going to be cutting rates by the end of this year. In December of last year, we started putting money on 2025. And month by month by month, we've been raising our stakes and bringing that point when you'll be cutting rates, even though you are you are certain, you are confident that you're going to be raising them until God knows when, the end of the universe. No. And now it's in the year 2022 that the Eurodollar futures market, the biggest market in the world, other than currencies, perhaps, is betting that they'll be cutting rates. And what a slap in the face that is. Because the day after they did their big 75 basis point hike was the first time that the Euro dollar futures curve inversion moved into the whites, which is this group of the first four contracts. As I said earlier, it was way out into the future, moving closer, closer. The day before, the day before, the big seventy-five basis point hike. We're the center of the monetary universe. They said less than one year, Federal Reserve, you'll be cutting rates less than one year, and they've increased their bets more since then. And who do you think will be right, the Federal
0: Reserve or the market, or the Eurodollar? I will be putting
1: market. my money on the the people that have been right for decades. They did it in two thousand. They did it in two thousand six. They did it in two thousand eighteen, and the Federal Reserve was saying, "What? Where am I? What's go? Where- Why is this market doing these things?" Well, oh, it's just hedging. <sighs> Markets. I'm sorry, I'm getting yeah. upset, Jack, but it's just contemptible, the Federal Reserve and their track record.
0: I think so. The I think the Federal Reserve started their dot plots after the Great Financial Crisis. So you, you know, the really if you're you, the, judging the Fed versus the Eurodollar futures market, you have to start with the dot plots. So yeah, since the origin of the dot plots, they have been a very poor predictor of interest rates. And yes, the, the interest rate futures curve, I guess you could say the treasury curve, just the, the, the bond market really, uh, has been much more successful, I, I say notably in 2018 when they, they priced they pivot, as well as in 2020, um, the Eurodollar futures uh, uh, curve predicted it. I would say though, I don't think the euro dollars futures market existed in the 1970s. The euro dollar market, of course did, but the euro dollar futures market, I don't think did. Uh, maybe Jeff has some some data on that. But I do think that if you look at the uh, 210 spread as well as the Fed funds rate, the Federal Reserve continued to hike into an inverted yield curve and into a recession during the 1970s and 80s. So I think that during an, uh, if we were in a period of secular inflation, uh, the Federal Reserve might not care about an in inverted euro dollar curve, as it seems to not, based on their, their statements.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, they don't care. They don't care. They haven't cared for decades. And they're not central to money. A meal. we're going to have to end
0: soon, but uh, my closing question for you is how do you think that this plays out over the next six months? How sharp do you think uh, economic growth slows? You know, how big do you think the, the the widening of credit spreads will be? And if there is a Fed pivot, what will sort of force the Fed to, to, to pivot?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I'm not too good at the short-term stuff. The next six months, I don't know. I really like the phraseology of ECRI, the Economic Psycho Research Institute, and Lakshman Achuthan. Forgive me. I know. I'm sorry. I love him. He's fantastic. And he says that we're in a window of vulnerability. So the window of vulnerability is open. Maybe it's going to close and everything will be fine. Maybe we'll hit a bad speed bump and we'll fall completely over. I don't know. We'll see how bad it can get. Maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe it will be really bad. The window of vulnerability is open. I would think at least through the end of this year. To be determined.
0: Yeah, Emil. I mean, say so you you referenced earlier the real GDP forecast from the Atlanta Fed, and that would indicate yeah a negative quarter over quarter annualized print for the second quarter in a row, which would uh, suggest we are in a recession. So that things are definitely not looking good uh, for the economy. Emil, we're going to have to leave it there. But yeah, can, can, where can people find you on Twitter, on, on YouTube? And also, do you have any uh, exciting guests that you're excited about on your channel with Jeff?
1: Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, the most exciting guest we have anywhere on our horizon is Captain Jack himself. We're going to definitely have to have you on. Uh, Eurodollar University, yes. eurodollar.university. Did you know that they have these end domain names now, Dot .university? Eurodollar.university, go there. Uh, YouTube, search for Emil Kalinowski or Jeff Snyder. And on Twitter, search for at Emil Kalinowski. And I had a wonderful time. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to find out what the feedback is from the audience. I hope I did okay.
0: Emil, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being in the lion's den. Uh, talk soon.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the Blockworks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the Blockworks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.